Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. We're going to find out what the 11th Hour Theatre is up to. They've reopened with a new production called Cavalcade, presented by Wits End. That's located in Leicester Street, Fitzroy. Peter Houghton, who is a writer, a director, an actor, and whose work I've seen uh, in various theatres across Melbourne. Uh, he joins us today to talk about a new work called Cavalcade, which is being presented in the 11th Hour Theatre in Fitzroy, which, Peter, I think has been dark for a while. Oh, yeah, well, it's run by um, Will Henderson, who's, who also lives there. Um, so he's a kind of, he's kind of gate-crashing his own theatre here. Um, it's such a beautiful space. People might remember it from when Will and Anne Thompson did shows there about probably 10 years ago now. It was the last one, I think. Um, we did a production of Endgame there, which was sort of quite a success for the company, and we kind of toured that around. But before that, he was regularly producing, actually, for almost every year they did a show, I think. Um, I did a few things there with them. We did King John and The Crucible and a couple of other things. They did a number of Shakespeare adaptations. Um, so it's a beautiful space. I mean, if you, if you know, my first plug would be come and have a look at his house. <laughs> it's really lovely. Which uh, kind of uh, is probably not the way people want to have this production pitched. But, so we, we should probably talk <laughs> yeah, about the show well, itself. We should. Um, oh, it's 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 a kind of. Um, I mean, for people who know Will, they'll they'll obviously have an extra level of enjoyment. But I, I kind of think of it as a as a sort of journey into his mind. Um, which is actually a delightful place to be. Um, it's poetic and funny and he's kind of, I think he, um, I haven't read the PR material we've got there, but he, it's Serious Clowns, I think, is his opening gambit, um, which is kind of true. <laughs> and something about sprint cyclists. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've possibly got to the stage of the process where, where I am allowed to talk about the props. <laughs> we've been restrained from discussing this 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 bicycle in the show, which is just kind of extraordinary. Designed by this guy called um, Jesse, who has a bicycle shop um, just off Johnson Street, and I probably won't go into too much detail except to say that um, it ca- it takes five riders. Um, it's all chained up magnificently. It's it's, it's kind of um, and for anyone out there. <laughs> I've got some weird pictures today, Richard. For anyone out there interested in cycling, um, <laughs> you're gonna love this. It is beautiful. Yeah. 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 Well, but again, this is one of those productions that it sounds like there are so many different entry points for people. Uh, yeah. If yeah. you're not a regular theatre goer, for example, the mm. idea of cycling uh, provides a, a new way <laughs> into the work. I know it's kind of well. Yes, it's sort of. Um, I mean, there's this line in the end of the play where, you know, the character's kind of lamenting and thinking back over life and that sort of thing. Uh, and he says, all my life, poetry, um, poetry, if only. And so it's this kind of uh, the best way to look at the show, I think, is as a sort of um, attempt by William really to... He bases it on the seven ages of man, person, mankind. Um, and it's... Uh, but he calls it the seven ages of the bicycle. <laughs> so there's this sort of evolution, devolution of this sort of bicycle as the show goes on, which he uses as a metaphor to kind of hang all our, you know, universal concerns on. And um, and so it does have a story spine in that, in that way. But 
beyond that, it, it diverges off into all sorts of poetic dark alleys and kind of interesting little caveats and cul-de-sacs. <laughs> Which strikes you know. me as a really interesting kind of evolution for you as a performer as well. Mm. I mean, I mm. know you best through scripted work. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. kind of, mm. Whether directing for the MTC or writing and performing in your own comedic work, which yes. will have an element of physical theatre and slapstick to it. Yes. But, but yes. It, it feels like much of your practice has been very script-based. Yes. Whereas yes. this feels more kind of more poetic with kind of live music and mm. using, using visual elements mm. and more. Mm. Look, it's definitely. I mean, it's it is scripted, but you're right. I mean, the kind of my battle with this was. Um, I mean, I think I, I don't know if this is a universal thing with actors actually, but um, I'm I'm all about psychology, and all about you know what's the audience going to make of this. You know, I can be quite full on like that, <laughs> poor William, but he was extremely patient with me. Apart from one day when he gave me a slap and stopped, told me to stop <laughs> stop making too much clowning or something. I can't remember. But um, but he was right. I needed to kind of get beyond that, really, because the sort of purely psychological reading of this piece would be would be dull. You know, it, it would string together a necklace, which is actually better consumed in in parts where the contradictions are allowed to be there. But of course, as an actor, instinctively, you're kind of looking for a, you're trying to find some sort of through line. You know, you're always trying to you know push a psychological through line, I suppose. So I had to sort of uncouple myself from that. It might have been useful in some ways, I think, in cracking individual scenes, but it started to become a bit of an obstacle for, you know, what's really a kind of... I mean, in some ways I think of it as, you know, if you were dying and images flashed through your mind, which, you know, perhaps some have some connection but often don't. I mean, I'm talking here to someone who hasn't died, so I'm no expert. <laughs> but um, but it is that kind of thing, I think. So there's this sort of beauty in just relaxing and... And kind of experiencing as as a series of events. Is there something liberating in that for you as an actor to be pushed outside of your comfort zone and and have to embrace something that might be a bit challenging, but can also lead to some really creative decisions? Yes, there is. There is actually. I'm kind of. Um, yeah. I mean, I I tell you one thing. It's absolutely been great for is um, that kind of performer anxiety. Like that sort of. Um, I must get this right. I have to push through I if it's slow here I need to pick you know that all that kind of constant actor chat you have with yourself the biggest thing about this piece I think and it and it kind of has to work on this level is that you know Tom and I Tom Constantine and I walk out on stage and we're just completely relaxed you know we really can play lightly with each other and the audience and um and that's been a really having not been on stage for a couple of years actually because of COVID you know I was you know, I had, I think at the beginning of this process, I was kind of going, oh my God, you know, can I still do it? Can I remember the lines? All that sort of old fashioned stuff, you know? And, um, and so just being able to rehearse over this, because we've had quite a long rehearsal period as well, and just calm down and go, you know, at the end of the day, theatre is um, pretty simple. You are reasonably convincing human being who's reasonably open and not stressed out and panicked has to stand in front of an audience and be the conduit for whatever the writer wants. You know, it's as fundamental as that. And you need to kind of just walk out and have the audience just see you and be able to read you quite quickly, I think, without having to do much. And it's sort of, it gets, yes, it is right back to basics, you know. And, um, and that's been a really great thing to do, just to work on that simple thing of presence, you know, of being here, of being present and just standing here and not trying to, you know, desperately achieve some task, you know. It's kind of, it's been quite liberating. I think the audience like that. They look out and they go, oh, I love that. I love that poor fool trying to do this. <laughs> yeah. whatever, whatever it is he's doing, I love it. <laughs> that, that sense of trepidation that I think so many actors felt returning mm. to the stage after COVID, mm. there was a real sense amongst not only actors but audiences as well. I certainly no longer felt match fit. No. And it's taken no. a couple of years to get 
that back. Yes. How how much of a struggle has it been for you as a performer mm. to to kind of regain that the I guess to to kind of stretch and rebuild the muscles that the mental muscles mm. that may have atrophied when you mm. were off stage for a couple of years. Well, the line learning thing is a real thing, <laughs> that's for sure, because um, the, mem- the memory is. I'm not the sort of person who does crossword puzzles and all that sort of stuff. You know, I'm living with my mum at the moment, and she's ninety. We've got her out the back in the garden, not not in the garden. We've, we've you know, <laughs> I had this mental yeah. image of her sitting yeah. by a pond with a fishing the, line, yeah, looking through the glass, possibly a little red cap. <laughs> no, we let we let her in sometimes, um, but um, but yeah, she's amazing. You know. She's kind of one of those people who's always done Sudokus and all this kind of stuff and she's got an extraordinary memory for someone that age. Um, I don't. And so there's that simple mechanical thing. Um, but, you know, actually I'd say, I mean, there's certainly trepidation about going back, but more usefully, and maybe this is because I'm an older actor um, and so I've been around for a while and so I wasn't so concerned about the, um, you know, am I good or not thing. I, I gave up on that <laughs> long ago. I am what I am, you know, but the thing I did work out um, during COVID, I think was just to unpick the, the sort of ambition, stress, outcome nexus a little bit for myself, and focus more on the enjoyment of what I'm doing. You know, the enjoyment of the work, and um, and that's been a, an absolutely um, guiding light since we've come out of COVID. I've just sort of gone, you know, that was a miserable period. Um, you know, people passed away during that period. There's a lot of really big and important things happened, and it was like at the end of the day, this is a game that we play with an audience. And as long as that game's fresh and li- lively and fun, and we're all having, you know, we're all, um, you know, want, we all want to be in that space together, then the actual technical details, whilst important, are not, you know, are not something worth sweating over too much, you know. Yeah. Um, so I've rediscovered my love of it actually, which is which is a lovely thing to do at this age. The production Cavalcade that we're talking about, which is on uh, at the Eleventh Hour Theatre in Leicester Street, Fitzroy, until the twenty first of May. From what I've heard about it, the theatre is a world of make-believe. Uh, mm. And and when actors are acting, they're acting in a play. Yes. Uh, and so often there's, I don't know, that sense of play can get lost sometimes. Mm. This feels like a production where you are being pushed to play again, yes. both uh, with uh, Tom Considine, the other actor you've mentioned, but also there's a, a, a pianist, uh, Peter Dumsday, yes. who's also... Uh, a trapeze artist? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think I think the other feature of William's um, uh, publicity material is that it's full of lies. Excellent, <laughs> good, good. Because yeah. I had a mental image of a trapeze artist playing yeah. the piano while suspended from a trapeze, and I was like, that would be interesting. Yeah. But, but so, what a live musical score? Yes, he's well, he's playing. Um, I mean, I didn't know. I, you know, like most people, I probably knew some of uh, Eric Sarty's kind of bigger numbers. You know, the, uh, um, but he's this is a based on a piece called Sports and Divertissement, was a series of short pieces and Peter is a you know is a stunning pianist and um but he's also I think uh I mean he plays a lot of you know obviously classical gigs and stuff like that he's he's loving being in a room with a bunch of idiots I think and just relaxing a bit and getting involved in the play um you know and sort of seeing I guess a little bit behind the curtain of what actors do and how our process is you know obviously not as technical but much more about loosening yourself up to play so he's really embraced that um, and yeah, that's right. I mean, you were talking about um, the kind of license to play or the encouragement to get beyond the technical. I think that's absolutely what we're. I mean, it is a technical show in some ways, but that's absolutely the goal. I think is to try and make it feel like it's happening for the first time. I mean, it, it sort of goes without saying that's that should be what we're always doing, really, as actors. I suppose you know that we're not just presenting a, you know, something behind a sheet of glass. That, that is the difference of our art form, I suppose. But 
Um, but I often do feel like I'm in a frame of some sort and I better not get out of whack because I might wreck the whole thing. <laughs> and I kind of hate that feeling. Um, so he has been kind enough to let us off the leash apparently and I think yesterday gave me gave me the first and dangerous note saying, just do what you want in there. And I'm like, oh, look out, mate. You can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Peter, you're um, an as well as an actor, you're also a director. Mm. What's it like uh, being directed by somebody else? Because mm. do you ever feel like occasionally saying, well, actually, I do yes. that quite differently? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the one thing I must never say. Um, oh, I love surrendering to someone else. It's really just such a joy after trying to control something. Um, yeah, I kind of, I mean, I, um, you know, a few people have said to me over the years, that you're never going to really succeed in an art form unless you specialise. And, you know, there's probably some truth in that in a careerist sort of sense, but I just have never been able to do that. I just don't want to give up the other things. I love the I love the way they talk to each other. I actually think they help in some ways. I think I do feel like I'm a better director because I act and because I know what actors are going through. I know when to shut up and when to let them, you know, I can see when they're getting reaching overload and that sort of stuff. I can read them quite well, I think, because I know how I would feel. Um, but I also um, just love going into a rehearsal room and, you know, working with people who I trust and respect um, to kind of use me as they see fit. And William, you know, he's he's such a... I mean, he's very different from me too as a director. He's not a... You know, he doesn't have the acting background as much that I have, but he's such an intellect, you know. He's such a kind of... He kind of seems to know something about everything. He's sort of bizarrely Bowerbirdish like that in terms of his knowledge of music and history and you know, especially poetry and language. And... Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I, I love just sort of switching off that part of my brain to some degree and sub- surrendering to the subjective a bit. Yeah. There's probably always an objective eye there somewhere going, "You sure?" But I'm <laughs> but I'm happy to jump into the river really. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one of the last things you directed was um, uh, the MTC production, The Heartbreak Choir, by mm. the late Aidan Fennessy, who yes. was a very close friend of yours. Yes. Yeah. You're now working on a film adaptation of another of his plays. Yes. So the play he did. Um, yeah, Aidan wrote a play called The Architect. I think I might have spoken to you about it, Richard. I can't remember now, but yeah, it was it was a, that was a weird one because it was, um, you know, Aidan actually had cancer when he wrote the play, but didn't know he had it. So he, um, yeah, in about a week before we started rehearsal on that uh, production, I rang him up and he told me he had cancer, which was bizarre because the play was all about someone with cancer, and um, so it was almost like he'd kind of I don't know, you know known something or, or not known it or whatever. Um, but it was a beautiful piece and it was... Um, Linda Cropper played the lead role in it and uh, she was sort of, you know, gorgeous. She did just a wonderful performance. Cameron Lukey came and saw it, who's the um, kind of one of the bosses down at 45 downstairs and Cameron really loved the play. And, um, and so he sort of acted as producer and kind of... Um, mentor really for myself and Matt Cameron to try and turn this thing into a screenplay which we've done via Screen Australia and we're now sitting around in in the sometimes common position of um, you know film writing going now what? <laughs> we've produced what I think is a pretty good draft um, and we need to I guess now it's now it's the bigger conversation about you know who's in it how do we get it up etc it's sort of but there, there is a completed first draft there that we did with um Screen Australia, who were very kind of helpful, obviously, in coming forward and making that happen. And um, so, yeah, so I haven't worked much, certainly not on the writing side of things in, on screen before, but I really love that process. And I work, and Matt Cameron, who I used to work with in theatre quite a lot, was, you know, that, that is his medium. Um, so it was, yeah, it was great. And it was lovely to keep Aidan's work going in all these different kind of strange ways to Heartbreak Choir's gone on and had a production in Auckland now, I think. 
Um, and there's a few other things happening with that which are in embargo at the moment. And don't involve me. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> but given that the screenplay, uh, the world of screenplay writing, can it can take years and years and years to mm, get mm. The, all the ducks lined up in a row, yes. to get the funding, to get the producing partners and so forth, mm. it must be lovely, yes, to have that creative side, mm. but then to be able to come to something like Cavalcade at the 11th Hour, hour Theatre in, in Fitzroy and go... It's immediate, it's now, it's happening, yes. rather than kind of twiddling your thumbs exactly. for five years. Well, that's the one thing that, about theatre, I reckon, is that it does actually go on. It's not some sort of whispered kind of, you know, thing that might or might not happen. Yeah, theatre's reliability is that people actually do it regularly. <laughs> and particularly in Melbourne, obviously, we're so blessed with all these kind of different little avenues in Melbourne that we can go down and... Um, yeah, and William was... I mean, I think that this is a this is a lockdown piece. He wrote this during... You know, this was his... This was also his... Um, opportunity of sitting down and relaxing a bit and going right. What do I really want to do? You know, he he jokingly on opening night we had um, James McCackie in the audience who was his professor at Melbourne University in 1979, I think. And William never handed in his graduation play <laughs> for his drama course. And um, James was in the audience and so he he said um, he gave this very charming speech, you know, thanking James for his. Um, tutelage all those years ago and also said in here finally is my graduation <laughs> <laughs> assignment <laughs> it's only 40 years late uh, yeah. better late than never yes <laughs> Uh, so, if you want a book to see Cavalcade by William Henderson, performed by Tom Considine, Peter Houghton, John Jacobs and pianist uh, Peter Dumsday, it's on at the 11th Hour Theatre, 170 Leicester Street, Fitzroy, uh, until Sunday the 21st of May at 8pm. Latecomers are not possible, so do not uh, turn up five minutes late to the 11th Hour Theatre in Leicester Street, Fitzroy. Um, and you can book by going to try booking com forward slash chili c h i l i so www.trybooking.com forward slash chili to book to see cavalcade presented by wit's end uh, at the 11th hour theater i've been chatting with one of the cast peter houghton peter it's been a pleasure thanks for coming in my pleasure Richard. thank you triple r Time for us to talk independent theatre now. Moth is a play by Declan Green, uh, a playwright who is one half of uh, the theatrical collective Sisters Grimm and who is today the artistic director of the Griffin Theatre Company up in Sydney. But Moth is a play that premiered at the Malthouse Theatre back in 2010 uh, and is now having a brand new production at Theatreworks in St Kilda uh, and it's part of the ongoing commitment by TheatreWorks to not just uh, present work by other companies but to create and stage work themselves. I'm joined in the studio by actor Adam Noviello, who is performing one of the, uh, the, the two key roles in Moth. Adam, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So this is on one level. It's a, a play about young people mm. and their mental health. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a massive part of it. Yeah, it's um, it, and it's a very interesting depiction of mental health in young people. It's very uh, raw and very um, blatant, which is something that drew me to it initially. It doesn't really shy away from how horrendous uh, bullying amongst young people can be and how that does mentally impact young people. And it's also a play uh, about comic books, about graphic novels. Yes. Uh, and it's also really um, an inter the whole thing takes place inside one person's head. 
Yeah, yeah, it's genius. Declan Green is a brilliant writer and this piece is, uh, you know, an absolute testament to how good he is because, yeah, the the whole play kind of takes place in sort of two uh, realms, I would say. You know, it's about these two young people, two best friends, and uh, in sort of one side of the play it's about them in this, you know, sort of uh, purgatory state where they're talking about this memory or this past experience that they went through and then the other world of the play is that memory playing out in its entirety. It's really, really cool. Very clever work. What attracted you to playing the character of Sebastian? Uh, To be honest, my initial attraction to doing it was the challenge of it. Bryony Dunn, our brilliant director, um, was the dramaturg on a play I did last year and approached me about it and I read for her. And when I read the script, it just, for me, and Bryony won't mind me saying this, I read it and was like, you want me to do this? Like, it just didn't seem like something that... I, it was something I'd never done before, a kind of show I'd never done before and a role I'd never really tackled. So for Bryony to see potential in me to play it was initially just so, uh, you know, amazing. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to jump on this because someone believes I can do this and it's going to be a real challenge for me. Secondly, I think it was the writing, you know, reading the script and, you know, having experienced, you know, fairly horrendous bullying myself as a young person and as a young queer person, uh, I was just very interested in doing a play that highlighted that and a play that didn't shy away from how truly awful it can be and how that impacts people, you know. Nothing really gets sugar-coated in Moth, which I really like. It's one of the things that I really loved about the original production mm. was the 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 sense of and it, it's a play it's it's really it's a piece of young adult fiction in a way it's mm. like reading a, a i don't know a John Marsden novel or something in high mm. school it's kind of pitched to that audience but it's in no way patronizing it's no way belittling no. and the characters feel so vividly real yeah. kind of Sebastian and uh Clarissa yeah. um you can you can the dynamic between them that prickly friendship that they mm. have it, mm. every kind of facet of the work feels so convincing. Totally, totally. I think it it very, very cleverly portrays a relationship between two very complex, uh, complicated young people. You know, they're not best friends that are braiding each other's hair and talking about, you know, you know, their crushes. They're awful to each other and they, they kind of are their, they're their own safe space, but they're also each other's uh, I guess punching bag in a way. It's fun to play and it's interesting to watch, but it's also truthful. It's you know, uh, young people as we as you know, we work each other out as young people and work out who we are. Like yeah, sometimes we're not always brilliant to the people who are closest to us. It's just part of human nature, and the play definitely definitely dives into that. It's again, it's that authenticity of of recognizing that, uh, and again, speaking as as a. Uh, somebody who, as a queer kid in high school, was horribly bullied. Mm. Uh, a, it's damaging, and B, you then sometimes turn around and bully other people, which is something I did in primary school, which I'm yeah. not proud of <laughs> in the slightest. Yeah. But that notion of going kind of all this shit is thrown on you yeah. and the only way to, at that age, when you're kind of 8, 10, 13, the only way to get rid of it is to try and offload it sometimes, sadly, Absolutely. on someone else. In this case, these two characters are doing it to, to the, one another, their so-called best friends. Oh, totally. You know, hurt people hurt people. And, you know, these two um, characters definitely, um, you know, are victims of that. And it's, you know, when you're so used to the language coming at you being aggressive or, you know, uh, uh, horrendous and 
and, you know, um, derogatory, you know, that, that gets ingrained in you. And, yeah, I know for myself growing up, it, it takes a long time to trust people who have some form of higher status than you because you've always established or understood those people to be um, uh, trying to harm you. So, you know, these two people are, are victims of that completely because when they get together, they still this aggressive sort of violent language. It's playful. It's the way they communicate and, it, like, there is joy in it. But, yeah, they're, they're very, um, very much affected by what goes on around them. If you've just tuned in, uh, I'm speaking with Adam Noviello about the play Moth by Declan Green. Now, speaking of relationships with kind of, I don't know, our past relationships, our past selves, you recently wrote an open letter to your teenage self. Amongst other things in that letter, uh, you urged yourself not to quit ballet. <laughs> yeah. I did jazz ballet as a kid oh so uh, in high school, so I, I was, I was empathising. But talk yeah. to us about, yeah, that, your relationship with your past self. How, yeah. Apart from writing an open letter to yourself, for example, mm-hmm. what other ways could you, do you wish you could help past you? Yeah, it was an interesting thing. You know, Seamster Magazine, uh, you know, asked us, to, it was, you know, part of publicity for the show and it was like, okay, if you could do this, what would you say? And it was actually quite therapeutic because I've never done anything like that before. And so, yeah, I just stopped and had a think and I was like, right, say I, yeah, hypothetically I'm sitting next to my younger self, my teenage self, you know, what would I want to tell them? And, yeah, the, the ballet thing was very much, you know, at the time I was, I, I was dancing and singing and things and pursuing the things I loved. And I was very, very lucky that my parents supported that. But, you know, ballet was this thing that I just knew I would get picked on for. I just, you know, I I was one of those, you know, unfortunately one of those people that just walked through the school and copped it just because I walked differently and, you know, just carried space differently to other, you know, boys around me. And, yeah, doing ballet was definitely something that, was going to service me as a dancer, but God, it was just something I didn't want people to know about just because I, I knew what would come at me. I knew there'd be comments about my femininity or whatever. Um, but, you know, if I could tell my younger self who was just dreadfully scared of doing it, dreadfully scared of people knowing about it and absolutely not wanting to do it because of those things, I would tell them, just do it. Just do it. It's going to be great for your career. It's going to be great for your life as a dancer and your career in musical theatre. Just keep doing it because the noise that's coming from people bullying you and, you know, all that dirty, wasted air they're taking up being horrendous to you about it, doesn't matter. And when you're older, when you're the 30-year-old human I am now... You won't even think about those people. They don't even matter anymore. You don't even remember their names. They just don't matter. But what does matter is you doing something you love and working on something you're passionate about. So, yeah, it was a big point I wanted to make to young Adam in my letter. Did you stick with ballet as a, as a teenager? Yeah, I did. Look, not as long as I should have, and hindsight's a beautiful thing, but beyond, you know, the initial uh, horror of people finding out and picking on me for it, I did keep it up for a couple of years, and it has served me because, you know, I've worked predominantly in musical theatre in my career and, you know, uh, getting into, you know, big shows that required sort of very technical choreography. It's something that I just naturally can grasp um, because of the years of ballet that I did. So, yeah, I am grateful I didn't quit it. Um, but if I, yeah, if I could tell my younger self anything, I would just be like, don't be scared, just keep dancing. In retrospect, the thing I wish I could tell my younger yes, self from please. that period of my life would be when bullies are kind of saying, uh, you do jazz ballet, 
What a poofda. I'd be like, I'm the only boy in a class full of girls. Yes. You're going to be so jealous that I get to hang out with them. Totally. Like, can turn that around at them at the time. Oh, did not occur to me at all. But. Not at all. And I mean, like, gosh, you're spending your time in the change room with a bunch of boys and you're picking on me for what I'm doing? God, like, save your breath and spare me your crap. Not interested. Yeah, gosh. Wouldn't it be wonderful to go back with the knowledge and wisdom we have now Absolutely. and talk to those people? Now, Adam, you're also a singer-songwriter. Writer, as well yes. as doing acting and musical theatre. Yes. So uh, a triple threat or a quadruple <laughs> threat if we had kind of dance in as well. That's nice, thank you. Talk to us about that facet of your creative practice. Yeah. Kind of songwriting is something that mm. seems to come so naturally to some people and I kind of, I look so enviously at people <laughs> like that. I, and music was my first love. I think when I started uh, as a creative being, it was always, I just wanted to be a singer. I just wanted to sing and, you know, I had uh, pop idols and you know uh in high school I just started dabbling with writing lyrics and it was just therapy for me it was just a way for me to express myself and it was a way for me to you know get my feelings out there and I never really stopped doing it but um in my early 20s you know musical theater sort of took over as far as like my creative life and then yeah in the pandemic you know the musical I was doing was cancelled and then the show I was meant to start rehearsing in 2020 got cancelled and so I was just looking at my career thinking right well how do I uh, where am I going to put all my creative energy now like I don't have uh, God knows when theatre is going to come back so I just I had to do something with it and I've I've been writing songs as like a, a you know a pastime joy for years and then I just decided you know to hell with it I'm going to make work out of it and um, have recorded tunes and released uh, you know three singles and an EP and uh, they've gone splendidly well and I'm sort of yeah gigging my tunes a lot and you know now that sort of the world is open again and we're kind of back to our sort of normal life as artists I'm just enjoying this roller coaster ride of you know releasing my tunes and working on my music and then when gigs pop up like Moth uh, and you know people want to work with me I'm, I'm diving in I'm just I'm just here for the ride. I'm amazed you have the time to do it all. (laughs) (laughs) You make time when it's something you love. It doesn't feel like work because I just love doing it. To come back to Moth specifically, I Mm. talked about the the fact that uh, part of it is tapping into the world of graphic novels and anime and so forth. Mm -hmm. Is that being represented... in the show through um, projection? Uh, very much through lighting and and through the, the set and everything, absolutely. Um, but it's more or less being explored in, I guess, a, a physical and emotional sense. You know, my character Sebastian is anime obsessed. You know, he's at home watching Neon Genesis and uh, Trinity Blood and, you know, all these iconic, you know, shows. And in doing lots of research on it, you know, anime really beautifully explores spirituality it explores like bigger realms and, and multi-universes and things. And so my character in the show goes on a bit of a an unfortunate sort of schizophrenic delusion from a very uh, violent um, attack that uh, he goes through. And so within that, you know, he starts to sort of traverse... Uh, you know the 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 realm that he lives in so then it kind of morphs into his interest in anime because it's such a common thing that's explored in anime and so I myself playing the role I'm trying to sort of combine those things like right so if if Sebastian starts to hallucinate and starts to see things beyond what's physically in front of him what does it look like and of course it's colorful and of course it's it's bigger than he is because that's the stuff that he's going home and consuming on tv and in graphic novels so it's just combining his joy and his love of it with the unfortunate sort of mental health spiral that 
he goes on. And his mental health spiral also then includes a, a, a deeply spiritual element as very well. Very much so, very much and so. And we, we don't want to get into spoiler territory. No, no, I wouldn't want to spoil it for people. But, yeah, it's and, – and, and that's another thing that I think Moth explores so well is, you know, the reality of schizophrenia and how, you know, complex hallucinations can – can affect people and how people live with that. And we sort of watched Sebastian experience it for the first time. And, yeah, as a 15-year-old kid who's, you know, I guess his, you know, faith, you could say, is in anime and the things that he loves, then it starts to become bigger than that. And so he starts to sort of believe in higher powers and angels and and seeing things beyond the world he's in. Uh, And it's just, yeah, it's a really fun thing to play and it's a really cool thing to share with an audience. Now, we should acknowledge your uh, co-cast member. Of course, yes. Lucy Ansell plays uh, Clarissa and Lucy is a phenomenal, phenomenal actor. I didn't know them um, before we started rehearsing, but it's just been such a joy. You know, Moth is literally just the two of us on stage and we we bounce out of our characters and play a plethora of other people and I'm learning so much from watching Lucy work and, you know... They're also just a really, really cool person. But um, Lucy's incredible in this and, you know, there's many, many reasons why people should see Moth. But I think to see Lucy Ansell in action is worth the ticket price alone. Moth by Declan Green is running from the 17th of May until the 3rd of June at TheatreWorks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Uh, and you can book by going to theatreworks.org.au. Uh, the show runs from Tuesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm. Tickets are $50 for 42 concession. Uh, if you go along to the preview, 28 bucks. Uh, and... Uh, uh, ticks for, uh, for the mob are 20 bucks. Uh, you can book, as I said by going to theatreworks.org.au or calling 9534-3388. I've been chatting with singer-songwriter, actor, dancer, <laughs> musical theatre person, Adam Noviello. They're one of the two leads in Moth, which is a beautiful piece of writing, a really powerful and compelling play, which, despite some of its dark themes, is not at all... It's not a heavy-going theatrical experience. There's no. a There's a... Um, uh, a kind of a lightness of touch to the writing, even when it gets into some very dark places. Truly, yeah, it's absolutely worth seeing. I hope lots of people come. Adam, it's been a pleasure chatting, and thanks for coming in. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Samuel Beckett, uh, who's like, I know it, a playwright, a poet, a novelist and more. Uh, Beckett's play Happy Days is currently being staged by the Melbourne Theatre Company, performed by the legendary one and only Judith Lucy. Judith, good morning. Oh, legendary is really, really running with the ball, Richard. But thank you very much for that introduction. Good morning to you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, and particularly uh, to talk about a side of your career which people know that you, uh, you have acted before, but you were best known as a comedian. You walked away from comedy, uh, saying it was stressful, making you unhappy, uh, and instead you've done perhaps one of the most stressful, challenging plays a person could do, Happy Days. Yes. Look, there's a lot to 
unpack in what you've just said, Richard. Firstly, I mean, I think, thank you for saying that I've acted in the past, but I think we both know you're using that word very kindly and loosely. So um, thank you for that. I mean, let's face it, I've just done things like play myself and a couple of movies written for me by Comedy Buddies and, and Pete Hellier's sitcom. So this... This is a departure, and I guess I should say, too, with the comedy thing, I guess I still really think of myself as a comedian. I just don't think I'll be touring stand-up shows the same way that I used to. I keep saying that, Richard, because, look, when push comes to shove, if I need the money, I'll be back up there in a heartbeat. So I'm just leaving myself that big, fat opening in case I need it. Um, but I think summing all of that up, yes, I'm an idiot, and um, certainly one of the reasons I, I left stand-up, not the only reason, but one of the reasons was because it's a little bit stressful. And little did I know that I was plunging myself into something that was going to stress me out more than anything possibly ever has in my entire life. So as with many things, Richard, like the time I had Botox injected into my G-spot for a television program, I just didn't really give it that much thought until it was actually happening to me and then thought, wow, this was a strange decision, Judith. Well, it's a strange decision, perhaps, but it's also a fascinating one because the character of Winnie in Happy Days has been described uh, in, uh, by, by some people, certainly in the, the theatre world, as it's kind of, I don't know, for a, a female actor, it's the equivalent of Hamlet or something like that. It's a demanding role, but it's also a, a kind of a much-desired role in terms of an opportunity to showcase skills and talents. How familiar were you with, uh, with Happy Days as a play before you agreed to take this on? Well, I'm pretty sure because, of course, I did have my tragic drama student days at Curtin University in Perth, Richard, and I'm pretty confident I read it back then. Um, and, you know, maybe one of the most pretentious stories a person can pull out of their ass. when I was eight years of age, my brother was an academic, he read me Waiting for Godot, so, look, obviously, there's just a real connection there. Um, I, uh, look, I, I, obviously, I read it again before I said yes. To be really honest with you, I mean, I was aware of the fact that it is one of those roles. I guess I think it's just one of those roles that it's sort of silly to say no to. I, I knew it would be an enormous challenge, and, and by golly, I wasn't wrong about that, but... I guess, I guess I just thought, well, if you don't give things a crack and, and challenge yourself, what's the point of, dare I say, being an artist? Now, I was chatting a couple of weeks ago with uh, Xanthi Beasley, who is the movement consultant for this production, and when she told me that, I initially expressed some considerable surprise, given that for the duration of the play, you begin buried up to your waist in a mound of earth, and in the second half of the play, you're now buried up to your neck. And I was thinking, why do you need a movement coach when you can't really move for a lot oh, of the Richard. play? 
You can't see what's going on underneath that mound. I'm, I'm doing incredible things with the bottom half of my body that the audience just simply isn't aware of. Now, look, I have to say Xanthi is amazing, and I guess all the movement stuff was much more... Well, actually, she has given me great exercises to try and combat the fact that I am just standing very still for a long time. But also, um, oh, God, I'm really going back to my drama student days here. In terms of... Finding the character. We did a lot of movement-based stuff, you know, and there was a day where there I was pretending to be a bird uh, as part of the rehearsal, thinking to myself, I'm a 55-year-old comedian. What the hell am I doing? But um, I was pretending to be an ox pecker specifically for anyone who's interested. They're the little birds that hang out on the back of elephants. Uh, but actually the whole bird thing did help unlock some stuff for the part. And my wonderful co-star Hayden was in fact pretending to be a walrus. So you can, you can thank Zanthi for that, for that exercise um, and the, the discoveries we made because of it. I was also intrigued about the the need for a movement coach, given, as you say, the you are standing still for so long. So uh, thinking about posture to make sure that you're not going to be kind of bent double in pain by the end of the run, for example. But it then also made me think about the way that Samuel Beckett, as a playwright, the, the kind of strange demands he puts on actors, the, the monologue from 1972, Not I, uh, which I've seen performed a couple of times now, involves... Uh, uh, an actor being essentially strapped into a device so that all we see from the audience is their mouth and lips and teeth and tongue as they talk. They're just, they're, they're just a mouth in a hole delivering a monologue to an audience. Beckett is a really demanding playwright in terms of what he asks of actors. Is that fair to say? It's hard to know whether he hated actors or people or women, and possibly all three. And I think one of the reasons that I really related to this is because, of course, my parents, when I thought about it, were born roughly around the same time as Samuel Beckett and, of course, were Irish. And my father, too, was, well, would I use the phrase philandering alcoholic? Possibly I would. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think Beckett was a tricky character, but uh, unfortunately I kind of relate to some of that and understand where some of that comes from. Especially, I mean, if there's one thing that I can be sure of in this play, and there's so much that I can't be sure of, I don't think he was a fan of religion, Richard, between you and me, and I'm guessing it was a Catholic upbringing. And so maybe that's where a lot of his anger came from. In terms of the play itself, on one level, it's uh, it's a, a kind of a black comedy. The the, the farcical nature of somebody uh, buried, eventually buried up to their neck while trying to to maintain a hopeful outlook. But it's also a play about loneliness. It's about failure. Uh, it's about the inevitability of death. There's a it's a very dark play in many ways. Yeah, I think comedy is really running with the ball. Um, any, anyone who's coming along and expecting a, a, a kind of a... Well, put it this way. One of the previews, apparently um, six women, I'm assuming they all came together, I'm assuming that they had maybe been to shows with me in the past or maybe, you know, me and Den the wonderful Denise Scott and thought, oh, this is going to be a fun night out. 
apparently they'd loaded up on the wine and the Maltesers. And I think about an hour in thought, you know what, this is not the existential nightmare that we signed up for. <laughs> so um, while there are indeed some, some funny bits, and I think Hayden Spencer, who's not just a great actor but a great clown, um, manages to get a lot of humour from his part, uh, yeah, I think if you're after a kind of a Ron Burgundy legend of an Anchorman experience, this is not the play for you. I mean, you're right. It does tap into all of those things, death, loneliness. I also really think it taps into kind of connection and, and yeah, what, well, you know, he is sort of asking what's the point of, of anything, really. And, I mean, I do also have to add, just having been a bit um, unkind about Beckett, that um, I also do think that the play is kind of extraordinary. And one of the many wonderful things about doing it has been to actually spend so much time with the text. And while it has sent me quietly out of my mind, uh, you know, the writing is incredible. It is so dense. And it's really interesting because, of course, it's, well, I mean, like any artwork, but I think this maybe particularly, it's so open, open to interpretation. You know, Hayden was saying he had a conversation after the play with um, a young student the other night who said, well, of course, it's about obesity. And I really hadn't connected those dots. But if that's what it said to that person, I'd argue with them. Yeah. the One of the things that appeals to me about it is the... I, I, I've seen productions in the past where there's kind of that the thread of dark humour has been emphasised. For example, it's a very sardonic kind of form of humour in a way, but it is undeniably there. But it's also, as you say, it's a play about the need for companionship, the, a need for connection uh, in many ways as well. And what also fascinates me about Beckett is how strict and demanding his estate are. Um, I've, certainly I've heard of productions in the past where somebody wanted to do Waiting for Godot with two women playing the, the roles instead of two men as specified in the text. They didn't want to have a, uh, a dead tree on stage and so forth, and the productions got shut down. Um, when you were in conversations early in the process with uh, your director, uh, were there conversations about how you had to adhere to the text and what kind of wriggle room there was to bring a new interpretation or your own interpretation to the role of Winnie? The only controversy that we encountered, but, I mean, you're absolutely spot on, they are very demanding, um, is there is a version, and it, it is actually kind of, um, we're very grateful, it is the version we're doing. There's a version that um, has Beckett's edits in the actual text, um, which is slightly shorter than maybe the... The, the version that is maybe the most popular one in terms of just the publication. And for a while there, we didn't know if they were going to say yes to us doing the slightly different version, which obviously had Beckett's stamp of approval on it because he made, um, you know, all, of, all the, the edits himself. But, yeah, they got back to us and said, yes, you can. But um, apart from that, like, well, it's, it's just a different, a slightly different version. I mean, I think we've been very loyal to, um, to, to what he wanted done, for, for good or for ill. Given how um, endlessly optimistic the character of Winnie is, if you met her in real life, would you want to give her a slap? Oh, I think I would absolutely. Um, I don't know. I'd either give her many stiff drinks, um, po possibly, possibly some sort of medication, um, and then I would, I would throw my arms in the air and run screaming in the opposite direction.
No, she is. She is um, relentlessly positive until she's not, Richard. <laughs> and by crikey, when she when she embraces the negative side of the second act, and who can blame her considering what's going on? Uh, I think she makes up for all that positivity. What's next for you, Judith, after this run of Happy Days finishes on the 10th of June? Have you got any other projects lined up that you can reveal at this stage? Or are you just going to take a well-earned break? I'm just going to lie down um, and, and maybe hope that whatever I do next, Richard, involves maybe some work from the hips down. <laughs> In fact, maybe that's what, that will be my next acting role. I won't use the top half of my body Come and see me use just my leg to do maybe Macbeth. <laughs> Either that or you could take up some traditional Irish dancing. Oh, well, that would be a dream come true. Judith Lucy is performing in Samuel Beckett's Happy Days, an MTC production that is showing now until the 10th of June at the, uh, in the Sumner at the South Bank Theatre, 140 South Bank Boulevard in South Bank, as the name would suggest, uh, and you can book by going to mtc.com.au. Judith Lucy, as always, an absolute pleasure to chat. Thanks so much, Richard. Have a great day. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>